<laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, uh, former guest Liz said, she was like, please keep live tweeting this issue as we're reading. I'm living for this. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> anyway, people are excited to talk about view wisdom. Okay, let's do it. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we are discussing Excalibur number 86, Back to Life. This is a no smoking podcast, but Pete Wisdom says sod off. <laughs> He's coming in hot, whether we like it or not. Excalibur number 86 was originally published in February 1995, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Ken Lashley on pencils, Tom Wegerson on inks, Joe Rojas on colors, John Babcock on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. You know, I still have a lot of questions to ask you about your past. I've given you all the answers I'm capable of. You've given me answers, all right, but they were all different. What I want to know is, out of all the stories you told me, which ones were true and which ones weren't? My dear doctor, they're all true. Even the lies? Especially the lies. Welcome back to our weekly Pete Wisdom podcast. I am kidding. I would never do that to our dear friend, Daring Dan Grote, who's already got the Pete market cornered. We'll stick to being ourselves, but who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I love talking about sex and gender and comics and pop culture and academic places and popular ones and screaming it from the rooftops. I am the co-project lead of Sequential Scholars, which is currently talking about mid-career Chris Claremont. I am also, as always, Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. And in that capacity, I'm fighting for a contract rider to make sure he remains first on the Excalibur call sheet, a tall order with all this new star power to compete with. I am joined as always by Mav. Please remind us of your black ops expertise. I mean, if I remind you, then like I have to kill you. Isn't that like the thing? This was a weird intro. I was like trying to figure out how do I write an intro that implies that I might be a spy without <laughs> saying that I'm a spy because that's the entire thing, except that like, I also want to say that I'm a spy because usually I try to make these match whoever the character is. And Pete Wisdom's whole thing is, dude's a spy. That's like the only thing we know about him. Like in here, it's like, like what, what can I say about Pete Wisdom? Well, he's a secret spy, which kind of ruins the whole secret spy gimmick. So, yeah. I mean, they're also a group of spies that wears the logo of their spy organization right, on all right. of their clothes, <laughs> yeah. which yeah, is it's pretty literally, cool. It's, it's literally the worst 
possible spies ever. Like it, it's sort of like, you know, hey, you look like you might be a spy. I can tell by the <laughs> I'm a spy t-shirt that you're wearing. Yeah. No, this, this makes Garrick level. on DS9 look subtle. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's that level of um of, of of subterfuge. But you know, beyond that. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. Um, I'm the co-host of this show and another show called Box Popcast, and I'm a teaching assistant professor of digital narrative interactive design at University of Pittsburgh, where I study a lot of the same stuff that Anna does, and I teach classes on pop culture. And I'm I'm teaching a I'm teaching a a, a four class load this semester. Oh with my four god! Preps, and I didn't know that I was going to be doing that. I was intending to only do three, and then um, we realized we were short a person literally the day after classes started. So they were oh like, god. Hey, are you oh, are you man. can you teach this and i was like i guess when do i start they're like yesterday i'm like oh <laughs> sweet <laughs> so like so i'm suddenly um much more busy this semester than i thought i was gonna be i, I thought this was gonna be the first semester that i taught only three classes in, in mm-hmm. like a couple of years and nope i'm doing four so i'm a little mm-hmm. tired but i'm doing all right <laughs> i'm doing two and i feel over busy in my yeah but you're, but you're 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 driving 87 hours in order to get to class your your commute's 87 hours long it's ridiculous <laughs> it's that. true i've been on a lot of trains this week i'm not in my usual my usual space this week i'm at my sister's house and uh she's politely listening to headphones to not listen to me recording the podcast even though i thought it would be hilarious if she just jumped in but she's probably <laughs> not going to um andrew sadly couldn't join us this week um he will be back uh just taking taking some family time but we are joined by a wonderful smarty pants fellow scholar and podcaster in ilana levin welcome ilana hi it's so good to be here big fan of the show and your work and i'm looking forward to this well, we're so looking forward to chatting with you. I will give you a build up with a little bio. Since 2012, Elon Eleven has hosted Graphic Policy Radio, a podcast at the intersection of nerd culture and social change. They cover comics and comics adjacent media through a queer leftist lens with a focus on fan activism and bringing movement organizers into pop culture conversations. Ilana also co-hosts Deep Space Dive, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast with Shakespeareologist Dr. Sarah Daniel Rasher. Together with expert guests, they analyze the themes of Star Trek's most political show. Ilana's critical work extends to music, ranging from dad rock to goth. They've worked in the labor movement, New York politics, and in community organizing, and they currently run New York Media Mentors, a program teaching digital strategy to nonprofit organizations. So, Ilana, we've got so much to talk about today, but we got to do origin stories since you're a first-timer on the podcast. So tell us a little bit about that. What is the origin story of your love affair with comics? Sure. So um, as a kid, and also now, frankly, I I was always drawing. I am the oldest of two, and my younger brother is pretty significantly younger. And I began reading comics when he was old enough to begin reading comics. So I was like 12 years old, he's like seven years old, and I'm just, he's left some Marvel comics on the table, and it's printed matter with drawings of people on them, so clearly I'm (laughs) going to start reading them. Um, But it also means that my early comics exposure is like whatever it was that my little brother was reading, and I just kept stealing his stuff and reading it. Um, He sometimes (laughs) is producer for my podcast now, so he's semi-forgiven me. But uh, I like was immediately interested in it, and uh, because I came to comics as like a, I don't know, I guess I would say a pretentious preteen well a lot of what appealed to me in the marvel comics like especially in x-men was how political and news driven it felt like i felt like this was something i could justify to other people as being an intellectually valid interest which of course is like (laughs) gee how did you end up being a podcaster about this oh you've been trying to explain to people that comics are 
significant and defending your interests since you were young. I guess it all adds up now. But um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I think I was that one, you know, young teenager who was like, I think X Factor is the best comic. And that was always my <laughs> my main X-Men title. We're talking like 92, 93, you Petera. know, Phalanx. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Peter David, so like, yes. <laughs> I was, yes, exactly. I was a Peter Allen David kid. I also then had to be the journalist who wrote about the fact that he had just done something horribly anti-Romani at a con at like near Comic-Con. I was like, why yeah. are you doing this to me? This is my childhood, but I'm going to report something and say like just something terrible when I'm there. If no one else is going to report it anyway. So yeah, that was, that was really where I came into, into comics. And um, I had never read Excalibur before I, I knew about it. You know, it's always been of interest to me, but this was a great opportunity to start checking out that series. Yeah. We've had a few people recently that have jumped in, in this era too. And we, we're so defensive about it. We're like, well, we'll go back and read like the Claremont and Davis stuff. Cause like it is better, even though we are excited about this new era and we want people to keep listening to the podcast, but still <laughs> probably we wouldn't have done the podcast if we didn't have such a deep affection for like the original run of Excalibur. So I always recommend well, I, that one strongly. I was diving through my husband's dad had like bought out a closing comic store in like 1993, I guess. So he had wow. like 5,000 copies of the death of Superman and oh, yeah, I pulled yeah. some of the, right. <laughs> I pulled some of the random X caliber issues they had. And one of them was that wonderful issue where Kitty is like doing her best Terminator pose on the cover. Mm. And it, you know, it, it's super gay with Rachel yep. and mm -hmm. Kitty. And so like, I read that issue randomly just on its own. And then you guys ended up, I ended up listening to your episode where you covered it. And like, what synchronicity is that? It was lovely. Yeah. But you know, a lot of my own comics knowledge and interest, I'm a big Jack Kirby persons and um, I have a lot of interest in bronze age comics, you know, my own podcast. They talk a lot about contemporary stuff as well. But in the late 90s, I stopped reading mainstream comics. In the mid to late 90s, I stopped reading mainstream comics. The art was so fucking heinous, I couldn't take it. <laughs> um, and I luckily like knew some other comics nerds at that point who got me into reading Vertigo and things like that. So this is sort of an interesting period for me to jump into because I, I've... You know, like, I guess like, I kind of feel like maybe when comics began coming out on glossy paper, when like Marvel became on glossy paper, that was kind of when I stopped reading, reading them. So you're not quite at the point where I had yeah. in the chronology where I'd stopped reading mainline Marvel. You're we very but close. Very, very, very close. The, exactly. the Baxter stock prestige era is what it was. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like I actually know what kind of paper it was. Baxter stock. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, everything looked really ugly printed on it. They didn't know how to do color separation for <laughs> it yet. properly yet. <laughs> And then the pencils, I just, my aesthetics, I like Silver Age and Bronze Age aesthetics. I just do. I'm like an old man when it comes to my taste for so many things. And that's just true of my life interests in art as well. So what can I say? I, yeah. I was so excited actually when, sorry. I was going to say that would be a good time to talk about that. And, but just like agreeing <laughs> with you, like I, yeah. I would always go to books, music video in Toronto to look for old trade paperbacks of Marvel stuff. And I have a great one, like one of the original trade paperbacks of Dark Phoenix Saga, like printed on the more newest pa printy paper with like the fady colors. And it's completely mm -hmm. fallen apart. Pages are just completely unglued at this point, but I love it in that format. And then when they do the essentials reprints on the glossy paper, I'm just like, it looks good, I guess, but the colors are too rich. They're too vibrant. Mm -hmm. It's like the blue mm -hmm. of Nightcrawler doesn't contrast well enough with the black because that's just not how I'm used to seeing it. And like, I'm always on the lookout for those ones that like have the bende dots that like are have the more like <laughs> muted color yeah. palette i'm always on the lookout but anyway i know you wanted to talk about your experience of, of reading this particular issue like in, yeah. the, in the scan versus on marvel unlimited oh my gosh so yeah i have a marvel unlimited subscription and um you know it's a research tool really right um but i uh 
when you sent me those scans, I was so excited because the color on this, these issues looks so much better in the scans than it does in Marvel Unlimited. And these aren't even particularly egregious ones. I mean, there are some seriously egregious Bronze Age things that have happened. You know, this, these are yeah. not particularly bad in the Marvel Unlimited, but they look so much better in the scans that you shared. The color is doing what it's supposed to be doing. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, that's so funny. I love hearing our different perceptions about how it's supposed to be right because that is subjective <laughs> and it's based on certain preconceptions but it's always a really interesting conversation because some people really like you know modern digital recolors and some people really don't and it's it's interesting about who likes them and why yeah i mean it is subjective but we also know that the colors were done mm -hmm. and the art was mm -hmm. done to be printed in mm -hmm. bende dots like that yeah you know right. and the color separation was done for that that's so. one of my things. So uh, I was um, I did I wrote a paper a few years back. I published a paper on on the Killing Joke, and for various reasons, I was using three different editions of the Killing mm -hmm. Joke. So seeing a, a three different editions, two paper, two paper, and the one that was on DC's website. So seeing essentially three different color reproduc reproductions of a book that was prestige format when it came out, but still has been recolored to use a very different printing and you know so in some ways it is better in that you can see the more technical ability to actually print color in the the edition that came out in 2010 rather than the edition that came out in 1986 but on the other hand it looks weird because Clearly, when when he drew it originally, he didn't think that he was going to have the kinds yeah. of <laughs> like it, it looks it, it, it seems anachronistic because the line work is just not at par with where the color work is. Mm, yeah. And there and there's a, there is a weirdness to it that like I don't know. I, I, I also wonder, though, does it only bother me because I'm an, I'm an old man who saw it in 1985, right? Or 1986 or whatever. If I if I'd seen that story for the first time. I think I wrote that paper in 2015 or something, whenever it was that I wrote it, right? Would it, would I have even noticed or would it, would that have just been the way this looks? Yeah, I mean, I do think, though, that like colorists and they, they, people didn't really know how to do coloring for digital until right. like 2010, frankly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it technology, you know, art had to catch up with the technology. So and I think there's still some things that don't translate quite right. Like if you look at, you know, Neil Adams making art now, like he the color on a Neil Adams piece of art that he makes now is going to be better than the color recolored from art he'd made before. Mm -hmm. But it's still is he draws art that expects you to be coloring in a way that color isn't done anymore because he was like the guy in the 70s you know like that's when his style was developed i definitely think there's some artists who can bridge that really expertly i'm not saying this is universal but he just went you know he had one example that came to mind but like it's a different way of drawing the technology does impact what things look like um but yeah i really i think color colorists right now are doing some great stuff but it took a long time to get there yeah i think about like that smooth detailed line that adams has and also alan davis frankly mm -hmm. that yeah. it doesn't look very good with like the multiple shaded like digital color yes. looks better. It looks better with flats mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of like the nature of their line work. And I I really don't like seeing Alan Davis colored with the modern technique. His he's still a good artist. It's just that 
I don't like seeing it in modern comics because the color's not right and it's just doesn't yep. work for me. There's a counter <laughs> to that though. So one so this is something I've I've tried to express to people. One of the the hallmarks of the nineties era that we've been talking about, the extreme era, is um, you know, the then the then pencils and inks of uh, well, it's really the inks, but the then pencils usually attributed to a Jim Lee, which is mm-hmm. really, you know, it's about the Scott Williams inks. But a lot of what you're seeing as much more hyper detailed than the golden age is because the printing press got better so if you actually are ever lucky enough to see original jack kirby pencils the man was insane (laughs) like he actually he spent so much time doing such intricate detail that he knew could not be reproduced and it was very much a like why are you coloring individual strands of nick fairy's hair who is this for this is not going to appear in the book Uh, not coloring drawing uh, drawing uh, penciling and inking and it won't appear in the book and it just doesn't. And then like you only see it later if you happen to be in some museum that has the original hanging on this on the wall. And it's like, yeah. what was wrong with you? Why would you have done this? <laughs> like, he's but like, best. but that's I mean, just who he still, was. Yeah. He was drawing it for himself. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if you people, I really suggest the Jack Kirby, the, the Jack Kirby Museum and Research Center has amazing resources of scans. Kirby pencils. Sometimes you're able to purchase things from them of scanned mm-hmm. pencils and um, has really excellent resources to just look at what he was actually trying to do and make. And um, I've, I've done some programming with them. I love them. They're really a great organization. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I do want to talk about Peace Wisdom, but I also want to ask you, oh, yeah. I do, I do want to ask you the um, a, sort of a question about public scholarship related to your podcast, because, you know, we talked a little bit about what it is and stuff, but you seem to be very much in that space where you're sort of bridging academia and pop culture and fandom. And because that's obviously a project we're very interested in here on this podcast. Yes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what to your mind is sort of the value of doing kind of that, that bridge building you know what makes you want to want to kind of start conversations between those spaces and what do you think is the value of it well one thing I noticed you know in the digital particularly in the digital strategy parts of the progressive movement and like progressive political organizing was how many of us were comics readers growing up mm. or and in the present. Um, and I know that, you know, a lot of what we had read and seen helped inform, you know, the politics of who we are today. And I was a huge comics reader before I discovered any form of organized comics fandom. Like I, I didn't grow up in the forums and message boards or going to comics cons. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to have make there be conversations between people who you know, are excited that to talk about the politics of the comics that they love rather than, you know, and clearly, also clearly everyone agrees that these are politically deliberate, right? We, we all agree this clearly, yes. Um, but, you know, like, and so trying to host and find those conversations with my peers is sort of where it began. And then over time, really finding, you know, other people doing critical work who share my politics and often, you know, share my identities and, you know, queer and Jewish and all that good stuff. I felt like uh, I wanted to be able to host these conversations. And it was sort of how I started to find people and build build community. And then in respect, I mean, I think that people who are seeking to do political communications and movement building work like need to understand storytelling in a mm. way that we often undermine or take for granted. Um, there also are things that are 
traditional storytelling techniques that are at odds with how we want to reshape the world, but we have to understand them in order to do something about it. Like the lone hero, like stories are built around that. And that's actually not how organizing works. And so what are you going to do to make that, to like rectify that in how you try to tell the story of how we create social change? All, all of that stuff is what I'm really interested in. And it, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't occur to me that it is possible in any way to talk about comics without or any other pop culture, like including, you know, absolute trashy, beloved, campy 80s, you know, hair metal without a political lens, because <laughs> that's the world. We exist in the world. The world is political. We have a political lives. So yeah, that's sort of where we're at with this. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. The way that you're talking about, you know, storytelling as a way to understand the world and yeah, the inseparability of those things. I'm very much, very much on your wavelength with, with that mission. That's awesome. Um, okay. Let's talk about this Excalibur comic. I know you've got lots of thoughts and and we are going to have sigh that Warren Ellis conversation a little bit today, um, but we'll talk about the I'm, the fun to view I'm not of people as well. It, okay, great, like, great. I'm not dreading it. I know. I thought I would, but I'm actually not dreading it. I'm ready. <laughs> great. I'm I'm looking forward to it. All right, let's get into it. So we'll do our issue summary first. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod, and I know some of you like Pete Wisdom, and we're very happy for you. Let's start our meet cute <laughs> with a plot summary. Excalibur number eighty six opens in Ronsafan, Thailand. We zoom in on a scene of devastation. The bodies of the dead and the dying surrounding a man with floppy 90s hair and a lot of emotions his name is pete wisdom he just decided to quit british intelligence and he's crying because he knows he should have done it long before he killed everyone in ronsafan meanwhile brian braddock aka britannic has a vision of genosha in which mutates are dying and starving he sees pete wisdom getting shot and then he wakes up in a shuttle bay where he's just finished modding moira's hovercraft into a new and bigger and more phallic plane he's calling the midnight runner <laughs> moira's not happy but he's sweet talks with promises of medical uses. Later, the team is contacted on an old Who frequency by an approaching aircraft. The team is from Black Air, a new intelligence service replacing the old. Among their membership is one Pete Wisdom. Then they tell Excalibur they need to go to Genosha to find the origin of a new weapon that can kill mutates. Wisdom is accompanying them in a non-combat capacity. Excalibur has some reservations, but agreed to do the mission. Before they set sail, Douglock talks to Rory Campbell about the ethics of using war to gain freedom, and Kurt reveals that he knows Moira has been infected with the legacy virus. We conclude with Excalibur plus Pete Wisdom heading for Genosha. Using the Midnight Runner's Shi'ar technology, they arrive in a matter of moments. Brian sends out a probe, which returns views of the city, showing the dead and dying mutates on the streets, much like Brian's dream. Suddenly, the plane is hit by rockets and plummets to the ground. As they near the ground, time freezes. Everything turns to glass as a time quake causes this timeline to be destroyed? Oh, we're gonna have to deal with that mystery in the next issue. <laughs> but um, let's start with some first impressions, starting with our honored guest, what did wow. what did you make of this one? What are you particularly eager to talk about? It's interesting. Like, I would love to hear your thoughts on the significance of the name Pete Wisdom. Like, mm. we know this is a bit of an author self-insert character. Like, what does it mean that you've called yourself Pete Wisdom? And what is, like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I like that he's dropping out of an intelligence agency because they're busy doing terrible things as is their want. But mm -hmm. he just joins a different one. Like, how is this intelligence agency different from all other intelligence agencies? Like, what does he expect will be different this time? But yeah. yeah, what are your thoughts about being, like, Pete, like, Pete Wisdom? Like, why is he called Pete Wisdom? I hadn't really thought about it that much. I was just like, yeah, corny name makes sense. I mean, I guess my knee jerk thing is like, yeah, he's the author surrogate character who seems like, see, the thing is like, he's an author surrogate, but he's also self-deprecating in a lot of ways too. 
Mm-hmm. So you have that going on with the character, which isn't unsophisticated, but he's very much, as many people have pointed out, a ripoff of John Constantine. So there's that going on. And of course, Ellis would later write write that character. So this is a little bit of his practice run for that. I mean, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on it, Mav? No, I mean, so I, I hinted at this before. There are people who comment that, you know, well, he's a, he's an, he's an author surrogate. I'm like, well, but yeah. But we have that term because it's a thing authors do. You know? yeah. <laughs> like I like I actually don't have a problem with Pete Wisdom under the the notion people are like, well, he's only there because Warren Ellis wanted to put himself in the comic. And the answer to that is, yeah. 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 That's what I it, mean, that's, that's not inherently evil. You're allowed yeah, right. to do that. Yeah. Right. It is a it is a thing that we do. Stan thought he was Reed Richards and Captain America. Go check. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's what believed. Yeah. So like, is that wrong? I mean he's the writer write what you know is like day one of fiction class like that's a now do people actually write what they know no it's what they they write what they what they perceive of themselves and again that's fine so i'm fine with it i also you know like people are always like well and we'll talk about it in future episodes but just because it's relevant here yes the author surrogate character ends up in a relationship with his favorite character but the thing is the way he writes kitty and the way that he writes pete wisdom at this point i don't think they're as age inappropriate as people like like them to be because kitty is very clearly an adult in this comic and in all future ones Mm. she's a young adult but she's an adult and he's not old i think pete wisdom is like 25 tops and warren ellis at this time i think is 28 or something like that at time of publication he's not that old he's much older now obviously so i'm okay with it i'm okay with the with conceptually everything that happens in this book i'm okay with i also don't think pete wisdom is very interesting here i remember reading this going not i be i think he becomes more interesting later Hmm. But this comic in particular, because I this is his introduction, and I remember the first time I read it, and I go, "Oh, okay, so Constantine's here now." Like that's mm-hmm. what that's what you get because I'm like, you know, I mean, I made the joke about this at the beginning with my intro. Hi, I'm a spy. That's all I know about him. He literally does nothing else. He's you know he's yeah. grumpy and won't put out his cigarettes because he's edgy and it's the nineties. <laughs> like that's it. There's no like there's no. It's not. This is this is not nineteen forty five. The fact that you can't smoke on an airplane is not weird in at this point, right? <laughs> like he's he's being an asshole just to show you that hey he's edgy. This guy smokes. It's the exact same reason that Kitty smoked. You know, literally mm-hmm. two issues ago. She smoked a cigarette to show you that she was being a little edgy at that point. She was, you know, not in her right mind. Huh? Huh? See, she's got a cigarette. And it, yeah. it was just like a universal signifier. But like he does nothing. He has no actual characterization in this particular issue. He is a collection of tropes. He's a little, he's a little bit Constantine. He's a little bit James Bond. And he's a lot 90s. Now, he oh. will become more. He will become more than that. But in this issue, he is a guy who is tortured by the fact that he killed a bunch of people, you know, the way other 90s characters do. <laughs> I'm, I'm, going, I'm going the other way on the debut, but I'll, I'll come back to our, to our guest with it. Did you want to contribute? Well, I, I was just also going to say, I hadn't realized that in one future he might become Ahab. 
And I just think it's well, that's Rory. It's, that's actually uh, th- that's a, that's not Pete. That's Rory. But you are oh, forgiven for not yes. being able to tell the difference, which is sort oh, of my point. Oh, are they drawn the same? Okay, yeah. never mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are two different I guys. Can totally see thinking that. And there's no oh, reason well, why. Yeah. And 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 there's and if you've not been reading, there's no reason to not. To, that's my point. He is a generic cliche of the '90s dude in this particular book. But yeah, those are two different characters. You're completely forgiven for not picking up on that. <laughs> well, <let's laughs> there's no yeah. reason. There's no reason why you would. He does say the other name. They do say Rory there, like one, but they're they're oh, okay. they are yeah, they are it, like, just the same looking guy. Well, it's also just like the way it's the way it's sequenced. It's like mm-hmm. what? But you know, I, I was gonna say I don't have a problem with author self insert characters. I there's a few that I enjoy often by Grant Morrison, but like oh, I yeah. find that. Like the whole like yourself insert character dates the young female character that is the audience stand in love interest yeah. for people is a little bit like basic, but I guess maybe it's absolutely maybe this is maybe this helped innovate that development. I don't freaking know. I just think we we don't need to do it anymore. You could you know like whatever you wanted to do then that's fine, but like it's not interesting anymore. I guess is what I would say. But I'm I'm open. Yeah. I'm open to like this character becoming interesting in time. You know, I don't really have any frame of reference. So, oh my god, I was really sold on this review. I'm going hard the other way. I have been looking forward to revisiting this era because I hadn't read it in a while, mm-hmm. and I really thought that that first couple of pages introducing Pete was pretty effective. Like the amount of mystery there. You have like the critique of the intelligence services. This guy's going to be kind of in an in between space. You have like his emotions, and you have the mystery of okay, well he's sort of a good guy because he's opposing this, and yet he killed everybody. Twist. And I was pretty hooked on that mystery. Huh. I mean, it's just that like if he's disillusioned with this basically the, the the uk version of the cia like why is he in a new intelligence agency like i appreciate that he's now saying he doesn't he's only in a non-violent capacity but it's sort of i mean maybe we'll find out you know that lasts um, exactly this issue yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even understand why he's in a non it's like oh strictly in a non-combat role i'm like okay well pete's always pete's always hesitant to use his powers though. right sure well but Sure, but I don't understand why, like, I got the impression that this is a edict of the company, not of him in, mm. in here. And and it's, 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 it is vague. It, it just seems to be there just to distance him. I like appreciate that in the comic, you know, even when one arm of the security state is dismantled, a new one with a slightly different name springs up and is <laughs> up to the same exact bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um that's consistent with the world. Go read Spencer Ackerman's latest book. Um, so there's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I was intrigued by the in-betweenness of him, but also just on a trashy level, I was mm-hmm. loving the disruption that he provided in this space. You know, everybody's kind of operating in the PG superhero space. And then Pete's just like, sod off, I'm going to smoke in here. And everyone's like, <gasps> And like scandalized and like I laughed a lot reading this comic book, which I'm here for enjoyment and I really enjoyed that. So was it good? I can't tell. Did I enjoy it? I sure did. It's good. Mm. <laughs> you're happy for me. No, yes. I, I, I don't I don't think you're wrong though. Like it's the thing I just this book just we've been like complaining for on it. We've right. been complaining for so long about this book being in limbo. And it's just like right. this is an injection of energy and I'm just here for it on that level. Yes, something is happening. And that is, I know what's coming and I enjoy it and I enjoy much of Pete Wisdom. But even in this one, my critique when I read it the first time was, huh, hell, Hellblazer's in this now. That's, uh, because I don't, like, so I don't even know what Pete Wisdom's powers are yet. 
well that's from the here. mystery that's, that's right like why you're right. supposed to be intrigued right what i what i know is he's a generic guy in a trench coat with, with and he's got some pathos going on oh okay it's the 90s like that's that's what I know about him. And it's fine. It's enough of a hook where I feel like I am invested in knowing more, more so than I've been in a long time in this book. So that's something. Mm. But I don't feel like I've actually been told anything so much as it feels like it's relying on me knowing tropes a lot, right? It's oh, a lot, yeah, of course. It's, it's relying on me seeing a guy in a trench coat with a tie and going, oh, I know what kind of guy that is, you know. <laughs> You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because one Mm -hmm. of my big notes here was I have thoughts about how Warren Ellis is this issue or not. But I Mm -hmm. think what you just said here about how it relies on you knowing tropes is actually the most Warren Ellis thing about it. So Mm -hmm. thank you for saying that. Maybe let's open up a conversation about Ellis and then come back to that. But also I would just say right here that I think part of the appeal of Pete is that like, I don't know, he's like crying and emotional and intense and don't you kind of just want to reach into the comic book page and brush one of those locks of hair off his heavily cross-hashed forehead and maybe give him a hug i don't know i'm just saying saying. um anyway we we will get back to the appeal of pete let's let's have the warren ellis conversation we'll talk about the scandal and his career a little bit okay so i've been promising we're going to talk about this a while so let's go through some of the the basics of it i imagine many of our listeners have a basic familiarity with a bunch of these details already but just so we're all on the same page. So Ellis is one of the most successful, most famous, most prolific comic book writers of the late 90s and 2000s. His list of accomplishments is long, including a bunch of high-profile properties from Marvel, Vertigo, and Dynamite, as well as critically praised independent and creator-owned stuff like The Authority and Transmetropolitan. And in 2020, it all came crashing down after numerous allegations of predatory, exploitative behavior and grooming. The allegations are collected on a website called somanyofus.com. You can read people's personal accounts there, and if you Google... Warren Ellis scandal, you'll find lots of stories from high-profile outlets. You can learn more there. The basic gist is Ellis peddled his fame and influence for sexual favors, and he lied to most or all of his partners about the circumstances of their relationships, keeping them secret from each other. In total, at least 100 people have made accusations, and over 30 wrote statements for the So Many of Us website. So I think it's important to sort of emphasize the specific nature of the allegations here. We're talking about a pattern of predatory behavior. We're not necessarily talking about physical sexual assault and I think it is sort of important to be clear but where it gets complicated is that consent full consent couldn't really be achieved in this case because of the nature of the lying that was happening and because of his power and influence so it is complicated and um, anyway the current status of it is that Ellis did come forward to apologize and in 2021 said he would approach the so many of us organizers to accept their offer of a reconciliatory dialogue Um, I think Mav, you had a slight update on what's going on there because the last I heard, he just reached out and we heard that there would be something, but I hadn't heard any more. So yeah. you know more, go ahead. I know slightly more, but like the the what I know more of is that there's more to know, but they're not talking about it. So in January of last year, January of 2022, the um, So Many of Us website, uh, and it's so many of us.com if you're looking for it, it's there's a statement from January 31st, 2022, where they basically confirmed that Ellis was in dialogue with them and that stuff is happening 
but they didn't say what other than to confirm that, yeah, it's going to be a long road and we're working on it. I'm not going to read the entire thing because it's a it's a lengthy post, but the gist of it, the important part is SMOUTJ, that's the name of the website, entered into a mediated conversation with Warren Ellis in August of 2021. And this is, remember, this is from 2022. It has taken a great deal of effort and foundational work in order for us to begin communicating effectively with Ellis. We acknowledge this slow, challenging process and also acknowledge that it is simply too early to report where it is headed or where it may end up. We would like to emphasize that Warren Ellis has the option of working on healing and recovering independently, and this work is necessary whether or not he continues to work with us. Here is the clarity we can offer. Our goal is, is to transform harm, not cancel Warren Ellis and then in parentheses or anyone else. We cannot and will not sign off on his moral progress. We decline to be the authority on who is allowed to work in what context. We reaffirm our, our support for the right of creators to be paid for their work, as well as the right of publishers, creatives, and others to determine who they uh, work with. And there's more. Again, it's a, it's a relatively lengthy post, but it's clearly towing a legal line. And the best I can say of it is, and he's made exactly one reference to that since then later on he posted to but he's he's been vague about it and they've been vague about it other than the sort of mutual acknowledgement that hey we're talking to each other and we're keeping the details private which kind of makes sense if it, like I, they said mediators i don't know if mediators are lawyers or not but particularly if they're lawyers but even if it was just like a shrink or something you know if it was if there's a mediator mm -hmm. i understand why you'd want to keep that conversation private and to be fair, on behalf of so many of us and of Ellis, on both of their behalves, they don't owe us anything, which sounds weird. No. Like, I mean, like, I, there's a reason why we want to know. But if the process is literally about, and I'm going to use the word they used, which is healing, right? If the, if the, if the process is literally about healing, then they should be doing it in private. They're only doing it publicly because to us, he's a public figure. So there's a weirdness about it, but they appear to at least be like, it's not a, it's not a thing where he said he'd reach out and then he never did. They acknowledge that he did and they acknowledge that he's talking to them and they've been explicitly vague about how well it's going. But the fact that this was in January and they said it started in August implies that like it's going well enough that there's been more than one conversation. Now, they could all be shitty conversations for all I know. I have no idea. But that intentional vagueness, I just feel like oddly needs to be respected, even though it's not mm -hmm. helpful to us. <laughs> you, know, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's yeah. weird. I I want to talk about the not helpful to us piece of it, right? Like, yeah. I think so many people who like enjoy Alice's work, you know, myself mm -hmm. included, like the inclination you have is you want to know, okay, has he made it up to them? Is, am I allowed to read him now? Am I allowed to enjoy this? Is it okay now? And it's like, that's not how this works because they're not right. doing this in order for it to make it okay for us to enjoy his work. By the same token, I am not assuming that they're working with a lawyer. I, I for They could be easily working with somebody with an expertise in restorative justice. Right. That has nothing to do with legal systems whatsoever. Absolutely. And I have I no mean, way of knowing. And we yeah. shouldn't know is the thing. We, we, we yeah. don't need to know. And that's why it's yeah. weird. And I mean, the other, the other piece is I just am struck by how much freaking work this is for the people mm -hmm. who are participating in it yeah. and how ridiculous it is that so many people have to put so many hours of their time into resolving something like this 
I wish they could just work on their art and their writing and like all the things that they want to be doing instead of dealing with mitigating harm that someone did to them and to a community. Yes. So. And that's for you're, you're referring to presumably the individuals here because we don't even know who they yes. are. Like we don't know. We know who, so, they, who some of them are. Right. Like some I mean, of them. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. but we don't. What I meant was we don't know who's involved in the mediation even. Like I. Right. I, they're individuals. There's a hundred of them. I can't presume they're all on exactly the same page. <laughs> Like, because yeah. like, that's not how people work. Maybe they yeah. are, but I, I assume they're not. So I assume it's complicated. So I don't know that we're ever going to have a better answer than we have now. And I I get that that's discouraging. The way I read their their comment, because they were nice enough to leave that, so many of us was nice enough to give that much, is they're saying, look, enjoy him or don't. That's not our business. Our business is dealing with the direct effect that he had on us. And we, you know, like, so I, I understand that and I and I support that. But it is weird because, you know, as a fan, I get why people want to say, OK, well, you know, I it, like I understand why people are like, well, do I want to buy a Warren Ellis comic right now or not? And so many of us is sort of punting on that and saying that that's not their decision to make yeah. for you. And they're right. Right. But I understand why that's frustrating. And I, yeah. and, I and so for us we've got a show to do so we're gonna have to talk about him and mm -hmm. we can't and we, and we're just never gonna have better certainly not by the time we're done we're probably not gonna have better information to report than we have now i mean what you know what i say to people is like if you don't feel comfortable reading work by someone like that then i'm mm -hmm. not gonna tell you that you need to i'm not gonna right. say yes oh my god you're you can't be a comic scholar of the mid you know of the early aughts if you refuse to read warren ellis like you can be or do whatever you want but i'm also not gonna lie and say oh i never liked him i hate when people are like oh i never liked him anyway shut the fuck up you know like i'm sorry <laughs> yeah authority is one of the best i mean it's a, it is a transformative book i mean the reason i wanted to be kind of clear about the ellis allegations though is because i think one of the reasons these conversations are so complicated is because we do want that lack of ambiguity and you're like okay well what one person did is not the same as what another person did and it's not about ranking things but at yeah. the same time sort of the nature of the allegations does matter and i think the ellis one is really complicated because it's a complicated situation i mean the things that he did were clearly wrong the exploitation of using his fame to exploit people was clearly there and all of these horrible things and you know there's no ambiguity about the wrongness of all of it mm -hmm. but like at the same time i think the way that so many of us like the website and the group involved are approaching it speaks to the complicatedness of the situation. I, I do find it frustrating when we try to talk about this stuff because I've had this experience where when Andrew and I were starting Sequential Scholars and I just posted like a stack of my books, like, you know, because we just posted stacks of books about stuff we might talk about. And I had a couple of Warren Ellis comics in there. And like right away, people were like, how dare you? And I was like, mm -hmm. how dare I own this? Like, I bought yeah. this before I knew any about this. Like, I mean, I don't mm -hmm. like, I mean, and also, I'm not condoning Again, anything. It's your job. It's your literal, I mean, I like, I get it. Well, yeah, I, but it's, it's also that thing where you get targeted a little bit more because it's like, okay, well, Andrew said he wanted to talk about fables and no one said anything. And I posted a picture of a Warren right. Ellis book. And because I'm a woman, that was that's, a problem. That's exactly what I was going to oh, say. Oh, yeah, no. They totally expect like anyone who's not like a cis white man to be have like the most pristine taste in terms of like what we will or won't read. And they also just assume that we all want to be like hall monitors of what other people uh -huh, will and won't uh -huh. read. I mean, and a thing that I think is really significant to how I decide what I'm consuming is the only economic boycotts that actually make an impact 
and I care about impact are economic boycotts that are organized economic boycotts where lots of people are moving collectively to refuse to make a particular purchase. And that's a thing that can happen, for example, when you're trying to end apartheid in South Africa, Mm -hmm. which we'll get to talk about when we talk about the content of this comic. (laughs) Um, But like me making a decision to, let's say, like not have the DC Unlimited app because they haven't fired some of the motherfuckers who were complicit in covering up the sexual harassment that was Mm -hmm. going on from the highest levels of their office is because DC won't notice if I unsubscribe from DC Unlimited unless there's like a whole campaign around it. I just covered on my podcast the the public response with, with uh, Linda Corega of uh, the public response to the changes that Wizards of the Coast put out in the Dungeons and Dragons open gaming license. And that was an example of there being significant organized Massive. pushback against something Massive. in a way that actually impacted the decisions mm-hmm. of the company. And I just don't know like, I'm not going to tell anybody they need to go buy Warren Ellis comics. No. And I personally, like, I haven't been tempted to buy Warren Ellis comics, but I also already own them. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And like, I'm, but like me making a decision to buy or not to buy them, I'm frankly, like, to me, that is not a significant decision because it doesn't impact the economic it doesn't impact whether or not he's working the amount of money he makes off of it or doesn't is negligible and consumer activism is something we have to do collectively or else it's just i don't it doesn't actually it's not actually significant enough to create change if people personally feel uncomfortable with it that's totally fine but understand that's about you personally and your personal comfort and not necessarily something that's going to change the world at large that's all it's also weird having we we've made these weird binaries like i mean you you said uh yourself like anna's decision to still own a book that might appear in a photo <laughs> you know how dare you is because of this idea that we have this binary notion of you are either a feminist or you're not right like you either you know yeah. it, people are mad that you're not canceling warren ellis the right way as though anna you said that we don't want to we don't want to compare but there's no way to not have this this discussion without some comparative language he's not being accused of rape by anybody that i am aware of he is being accused of misleading and i don't want me to say that's okay it's not but i'm saying it's 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 a different level i i compared him to bill cosby and he's not being accused of drugging and you know of drugging people into unconsciousness and having sex with them the way bill cosby has he's also taken unlike say a bill cosby he has taken some responsibilities for his actions not to the level where i would like him to be but again it's not my decision it didn't happen to me it's not my decision to make but like he's acknowledging some wrongdoing in a way that many of the individuals wouldn't be and at least if i take so many of us at their word and i am inclined to he is in conversation with them of some kind i don't know how it's going but like if it's going on for gone on for months and they're intentionally not talking about it because they want the conversations to be ongoing that implies that there's more at work so in some way and i'm not I don't mean to forgive it so much as say, I think that there needs to be complicated nuance beyond Mm -hmm. this person is either canceled or not canceled. And you know who agrees with me? So many of us, because they said so in their statement. And that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at. It's not about canceling. It's about trying to have a complicated, painful, nuanced conversation that I, I, I just, I think needs to be dealt with and obviously we had to do it for our show because he's going to be you know we're not going to do by the way we're not we're not doing this every episode we've and we've had several episodes where we've not talked about it but he's just he's around and he's going to be around for a while you know (laughs) like that's it he's the writer and frankly i like a lot of these stories and i'm not going to apologize for that you know i don't think my analysis 
of the next 10 issues of this story where the relationship with Kitty is going to be, you know, is going to be predicated on the, well, you know, this individual, you know, used his position of, of not authority, his notoriety to mislead literally a hundred people into relationships that they would not have otherwise consented to because the 26 year old who wrote that, this story wasn't that person yet. And I don't mm. think it's actually, I mean, I, and I mean, literally he wasn't that he wrote these stories at the beginning of his career. This was 20 something years ago. So he wasn't that person that he would become. And also, frankly, I think our show would become kind of boring if this yeah, just well, became, yeah, yeah the, 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 well, the Warren Ellis bitch fest every week. Well, it's, it's been so much be more than that. Well, it's so much of our show too. We do reparative reading and talk about mm-hmm. the complex meanings that we take from these texts, right? And mm-hmm. you know, Ellis is a more complicated case for me than someone like Scott Laudell, whose comics I hate anyway. Right. <laughs> right. So right. I mean, like, just like rereading okay. his Excalibur run yeah. and just being like, Jesus Christ, man, how the fuck are you writing, Rachel? I just can't even stand it anymore. I feel so grossed out. And so, like, there's that, and I can see like the sensibilities of the author coming across so strongly there. And I just, I'm like, I don't care. Like, I don't want to read this anymore whereas like there are a lot of warren ellis comics that have been very meaningful to me and i actually do really like this Mm -hmm. run of excalibur and so i mean we're gonna talk about this again but one of the things i do want to talk about is yeah like (laughs) folks who do enjoy pete wisdom and even perhaps have a crush on wisdom and kind of enjoy the kitty and pete relationship which i think will get us into some of those questions and mm-hmm. we we talked started talking about this with kate coker uh briefly in our last episode that will get us talking about the politics of desire and you know whose gaze counts and you know is our enjoyment of this text discounted because of the actions of the author are we allowed to enjoy it for our own reasons and i think questions of creator and reader agency and the interaction between those things are going to get really interesting but also definitely agreed we're not going to be doing half an hour rehearsing this every single week (laughs) right so and and we have it and i and i think it will be like it's been the last six weeks since he's been on here where it's been like yeah we know we'll get to it so except for in the future it's going to be like yeah we know we talked about it (laughs) you know like like there's just there's just no other way to do it like and it's just it's that's just how it has to be in order to move forward with the project that is this show and and to be fair this is weirdly how uh, i mean it's just this is where we become more academic than popular because uh, often in like sort of popular criticism, you can just decide, okay, we're just not talking about Harvey Weinstein anymore. Like that's like a thing that people do, right? Mm-hmm. But like in literary criticism, pretty much everybody who is a canon author in fiction oh, yeah. from like the mid 1800s to the mid 1900s, they're just monsters. They're fucking monsters. <laughs> like, the, the, like literally these, these are people like committing their wives cause they don't want to deal with them, you know? And it's just, and, and like, and it's just, that's how it is. And they're, and you know, when you're teaching a class on, you know, the literary canon, you just say, look, okay, they fucking suck. Let's talk about their, (laughs) let's talk about their monstrous behavior towards their wives. Okay. Now let's talk about the rest of the story because otherwise I would literally be doing it every week. I'd have to do it for Hemingway. Mm -hmm. I'd have to do it for Fitzgerald. I have to do it. Like they're just, they're all just horrible people. And And, I mean, I definitely think it informs their work and like can be useful in how you analyze it, but it's not like, yeah, it doesn't make them suddenly not be important. Like it it doesn't make them suddenly like be unimportant now Mm -hmm. that we know, you know, whatever. Well, before we move on to talk about some Genosha stuff, I mean, I want to come back to you about it, Ilana, like, 
how do you go about analyzing the work of a problematic creator? Like, what's your kind of personal approach to that? You know, if you had to do another year of podcast about Warren Ellis, <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> how would you approach it? I'd just be curious about, about to hear your thoughts about that, just like a little bit oh, more before we move on. Sure. I mean, I definitely feel like we hit a lot of it, but one thing I think about is I'm not going to let the actions of Warren Ellis, like, keep me from an intellectual project of significance. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? If the, so many of us coalition said, hey, we are in this moment calling on readers to boycott this work, that would be a different story. But they have very clearly not said that. And certainly if one person said, I'm calling on this, I would also be like, oh, this isn't how we create change in the universe. This is feelings, um, you know, a different story. But like, as it is now, you know, you're going and doing historic analysis of significant work. And he's also not the only person who made this comic, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I know a lot of artists who are geniuses who've been saddled by working with complete pieces of shit writers. And I feel bad that like, there's stuff that folks have worked on where like, nobody's going to ever revisit it because of it, like it works in both directions and vice versa. Like, it, you know, like it sucks that we can't talk about motor crush anymore. Right. Like there's so many of these examples. Um, and, 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 and I'll, you know, I'll be the first person to admit like my cat is named Axel Rose. Like I'm not going to mm. self-censor what I love or pretend that I like love things that aren't, don't mean something to me. But I think it's very important to do what we did today and actually talk about this as well, for sure. Have to. And if people don't, then they're also being dishonest about the historical record and, yeah. and what the work means. So that's good. I, I appreciate that. That's a good foundation. And to be a little bit guilty about things, you know, I am like kind of glad that I already own all of the Warren Ellis stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to ask myself if I feel okay buying it yeah. or not. I already have it. Yeah. To be to be fair, all the stuff that you care about was work for hire. He's not getting royalties regardless. Even for image books? <laughs> no, not all. Well, no. Okay. If you don't well, have authority, yeah. I meant the stuff. I meant this stuff. I meant like, the, oh yeah, the this is true. Stuff. This is true. He's yeah, getting yeah, literally. Yes. If you're, yeah. if you're writing. If, yeah. If you want authority, that's different. Or trans, trans metropolitan. Trans metropolitan. They're do, really good. Yo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, he, it's hard. He, I, get, he, I get it. It's hard. He literally wrote like, I think one of the funniest lines in like random. He's written two of the, uh, uh, two of the funniest lines. Like I have from like comics fiction, both in the authority and planetary stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Which is, um, why do I have to say, get off the unique and probably alien living plinth that zaps the unwary? What is wrong with my life that I have to say these things out loud? Um, and I have felt that so much in my own life when dealing with other people. Um, and then I just always think about this this argument between uh, Apollo and Jenny Sparks. Like, I've been given better jobs than official weird animal burster. Not by me. <laughs> and bringing it back to this episode, to this issue of the comic, the Warren Ellis that wrote that, I don't, I don't see that here. He is not that funny yet. He hasn't. Th there's a moment at the very end of the comic where I finally see his voice. Mm -hmm. But earlier on, while, yeah, there's definitely tropes that are tropes that he cares about, his dialogue is not up to snuff of where he got later on. It's just yeah. not. And I and I don't even really see it. Like, if you asked me, Ilana, who wrote this comic and didn't tell me it was Warren Ellis, I don't know that I would have guessed that. I would have been like, it's definitely someone from the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's all I can tell you. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the, the moment where I finally was like, oh, that sounds like Warren Ellis is on the very last page with the time quake. And it says, near history smashed by a time quake tumbles down the broken, like broken glass. Time flexes and something dark and awful begins and to swirl and coalesce new history. And all that we know is gone like the rain in the ocean. Oh, okay. That's definitely something I read in Planetary. Yeah. That's finally, yeah. that's finally a sign of his style. So, well, one of Andrew's comments was, um, and he's, he couldn't be here today, but he, you know, when we were planning the episode, he did say there's a lot of this. I mean, speaking for him, he'll talk on him for himself when he when he's back. But he feels similarly to how we do. We do has different. Your mileage might vary on what you like and what you don't like. But he would also acknowledge. Ellis was a young writer at this point. He is doing something exciting and different for the book, which is great, but he's not the guy that he would become creatively five, ten years later either. And that's just, that's that's the evolution of a young writer. I would compare just like one last thing to, you know, talk about another problematic individual, but just because I want to talk about somebody who's great, back when J.K. Rowling went batshit oh, no. crazy, <laughs> um, and when she made it very, very clear where she stood on the whole turf nonsense thing. Daniel Radcliffe released a statement and he basically said, look, my life would not be where it is. With He, he never mentions her name, but he's like, mm -hmm. my life would not be where it is without those books and he, he and he, he prefaced it all very much with you know trans women are real women trans women are men are real men and uh, and, and he basically made it made it clear where he stood and he says my life would not be where what where it became with those books and i am eternally grateful and for whoever you are whatever you've gone through whatever those books made you feel to make you feel like it was okay to be whoever you are or whoever whoever you wanted to be and whatever solace you took from those books do not let anyone and i and he goes and he said something like and i mean anyone take that from you <laughs> and he's basically like he's like very he was very intentionally not saying jk's yeah. name but he's just like don't let her take this away from you because what we accomplished with those books he's like those books and those films means too much for someone to take it away from you just because they ended up being crazy and he's clearly yeah. talking about her and yeah. you know she wasn't invited to the movie reunion you know because they don't like her and I will you know, say what that, are you like, going to do? Yeah, there is an actual organized significant and at significant scale yeah, campaign yeah. Yes. to not buy the video game. So I feel like that's a different thing. That's different. Yeah, but that's and yeah. that's different than I feel bad for anybody who's like, this is my favorite book growing up. And now what do I do? And the answer is it sucks. This is like this is like the yeah. hard part of it's, you know, it's the hard part of literature. It's the hard part of the study of film. And, you know, because these are artifacts made by human beings and human beings are problematic and some are more problematic than others. I mean, the most the the most successful fan activist organization in the world came out of the Harry Potter fandom. They used to be called the Harry Potter Alliance. Now they're called Fandom Forward. And, you know, I, I never read any of this stuff, but like there's definitely a generation of people who, despite like their the original text is like racist and anti-Semitic and anti you know fat but like despite those things being in the original text took progressive 
messages from it nonetheless, and like actually built an organization that's registered voters, like fought for trans bathroom access, has a bajillion trans members in it that like came together through their fandom. Like it, it's it's complicated, you know. But definitely don't buy that video game. But yeah, I think Game of Radcliffe's like don't let she who shall not be named take to, like ruin your childhood is like mm-hmm. you know I, I I get that for real. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's let's talk about some more stuff in this comic. I did want to ask about <laughs> Genosha. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about apartheid. A nice Yay. light topic. Um, uh, yeah, so I'll come to you, Alana. Like, <laughs> I was kind of like, oh, this is why you wanted me on this issue. Was what well, I figured. So. Yeah, I did yeah. think you'd have thoughts about it, given given the kind of stuff that you that you. I enjoy talking about seems like the wrong way to say that, but um, your expertise. But um, yeah, I'm just be curious to hear you talk about your kind of mileage on Genosha as a metaphor. And I mean, we don't get a ton of it in this particular book. We just mm-hmm. sort of get some heavy handed statements rather than an interaction with this world. But like, yeah, I was sort of revisiting a bunch of the progress of the Genosha storyline and how weird and messed up it is. But I'll, I'll leave that an open question for you. I mean, yeah. When we've talked about metaphors on the show before, obviously we've talked about the classic thing of like, does the metaphor illuminate a real world thing or does it obfuscate a real world thing by imposing fantasy on that thing and simplifying it? So what's your mileage on Genosha? So when I was a young person reading comics, it felt very intellectual and smart that this comic had something that was so clearly talking about, I don't mean this particular comic, but the Mm -hmm. X-Men world had something that was talking about apartheid. Like as a 13, as a white, 13 year old in the 90s i was like wow this is really deep man as an adult who has like a different level of understanding about it i don't think this comic is doing a good job of it but i would i wouldn't say broadly oh this is genosha is a bad like metaphor and people shouldn't go there i think that like what we're seeing in here you know you you can take Pete Wisdom's analysis with a grain of salt, but he is a bit of an author stand-in and he does kind of both sides the economic crisis that's happening in <laughs> yeah. Genosha. And I'm like, yeah. oh, honey, you can't, do- don't you dare both sides this, you know? Um, there's no both sides. Like, yeah, you built your economic system on slavery. And so uh, you actually had the opportunity to do, actually do something different at the end of it, do real truth and reconciliation. And like, I am not an expert at the end of apartheid in South Africa and what that looked like economically, but I don't think it looked like this. And like, I think there's sort of a subtle implication that like letting the formerly suppressed majority of a country be in power leads them to not being able to function because the depravity they've lived in means that they're unprepared to lead is just, that's a thing people say, and it's not true. I don't know that he's put a lot of thought into saying this here. I don't know if that's a statement that like he actually is really holding, but I think that that's a subtext from the story. But I think that, you know, Genosha is an interesting metaphor and I think that there's potential there. I just don't know that all these white people who probably don't know much about (laughs) South Africa have quite got the ammunition to bring to have much insight to say about it. That said, was it this possibly a gateway that got young people in the early 90s who might not have been aware of South Africa otherwise because they didn't grow up in D.C. with political parents to know about South African apartheid? Mayhaps. And that would be good. I mean, at a certain level, we also have to think about like the assumed age of the audience who's reading it and the assumed Uh like lack of political familiarity or knowledge. And like some of these like not particularly well executed and sloppy metaphors that we observe, like if it got young people to like even start reading the news or 
thinking about these things, then that's right. not bad. I just wish that people in the year of 2023 would stop trying to make the MLK, Malcolm X, you know, <laughs> comparison yeah. between Professor X and it's Magneto because we have explained to you for years mm-hmm. why that is not acceptable. Um, if you're looking for an for what I believe is a really good roundtable conversation around this topic, my podcast hosted one and you can get it at Graphic Policy Radio. But at nice. least stop, stop with that one. Stop with that one. But, you know, I actually haven't read some of the core Genosha storybooks. Uh, I've read X-Factor and I have not read all the X-Men stuff. So maybe there's bits of it that are better than others. I don't know. Yeah, for me, it's sort of a case of the world building getting a little bit beyond them. And I mean, that happens with the horrible genocidal end of Genosha, which is a huge problem in the X-Men universe for just how much death it involves and how you can't really just move on from that. But Mm. like, to me, it's sort of an issue of, yeah, it's a potentially interesting metaphor, but we just sort of touch base with it every five years and then we forget about it. And then like, oh, there's 16 million people living there. Oh, like that must be interesting, but we just go there sometimes. And then every time we touch base there, it just becomes whatever we need it to be in that moment, which there's a little bit of that going on here because it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't line up with how it was being used in other comics at the time, but this is a different view of it than I think we had the last time we saw it so yeah yeah i think so i mean i look at this panel where of what is it 26 the panels on 26 and i this is like i have a bit of like a jack kirby lens to looking at the universe Mm -hmm. but i'm like oh is they going for armageddo from the fourth Mm -hmm. world and then it's like but this also is kind of in line with how abject starvation in the streets is generally portrayed like i don't want to necessarily say this is quoting kirby when it's like yeah like well how else would you do it i don't know yeah i mean i couldn't really say it better than that in terms of (laughs) the good and bad and metaphors but um let's move to some final thoughts there's so much more that we could talk about we'll give everybody a chance to to do one and we'll start with you mav anything that you want to circle back to or that we didn't get a chance to talk about go for it yeah brian got to do some stuff and he's Brian. He did. He did. His, his name's Brian. I don't know if you caught I that. Know. Brian. That's his name. Not pretend. I mean, yes, he's also Britannic. It's a code name. But dare I say it, I liked him here. I was like, hey, you know, the guy's just like, hey, I'm going to do some engineering. I'm going to like, I mean, it was kind of a jerky thing. You don't just sort of, you know, mod someone's car or in this case, your their hovercraft without asking because that's kind of a dick move. But also he's he's just he's not like being weird he's not just busting through walls for no reason he's not murderous he's just like eh, you know i was a little extra for a while but i'm over it now so i'm just gonna i'm gonna um install install a hyperdrive that's uh that's the thing i'm gonna do and and i'm trying to help out and i i i liked that brian was not really britannic in this book and yeah there's not really gonna be much more explanation for it than we've had so we're done <laughs> yeah i appreciated that his hair keeps looking fabulous he's got the super yeah. long high pony he's looking great uh, my thought was the the first encounter between kitty pride and p wisdom we're going to be revisiting that relationship but like god this page was so freaking hilarious like kitty mm. is so angry and then like the little exchange that there's a smoking ban in this aircraft by the way life sucks <laughs> you're just like what and then she rips the cigarette out of his mouth and he does like an o face and she's like i've got a lot of practice putting out cigarettes on people now don't make me do it to you <laughs> it's just like yeah. so much so much energy going on here <laughs> there is a weirdness i'm not about saying that. it's good or bad but it's energy well the weirdness about it is okay so she has put out 
cigars on Logan before. I get that. I get why she says that. Well, it's the Moira thing. The Moira thing yeah. from the previous mm-hmm. arc. Yeah, that thought, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But then, but the very next thing that happens on the next page is Brian repeats her line. And it's like, call my aircraft a crate again. And I'll let Kitty stub out your cigarettes on you, Wisdom. And I'm like, yeah, that's what she just said. <laughs> uh, like, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a scripting error. I don't think it's Brian yeah, being yeah, stupid. Yeah. I think that they're, they somehow screwed up and didn't realize they'd used the line twice. Because that, that's a weird conversational thing to say. It's like, yeah, I, I, I know that's what she said. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's it's a meet cute in as much as any meet cute is in a um in a rom com where you know they hate each other but they'll learn to love each other because mm-hmm. sexual tension. Mm-hmm. It's it's that thing. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And just also a signpost of Pete's ragged, I think, burned jacket that he mm-hmm. apparently couldn't change despite the fact that there was clearly a lot of time between when that happened and now uh pete's clothes getting ruined is gonna be gonna be a through line we'll we'll keep an eye on that his interesting fashion choices anyway alana let's come to you for your final thoughts i know there was a couple things you wanted to circle back to so what would you like to to spotlight for us before we leave this issue behind I want to talk about Ken Lashley's pencils. So we are entering a period in which in in comics are, you know, what year, what year was this baby? 1995. 90, yeah. 90, probably 94 when it actually came out. 95. Yes. Yeah. we're slowly entering an era in which there becomes to be a lot of art that I actively dislike. Ken's is like pretty good. I, I don't love it, but it has less of the overly 90s cross hatched to death. I mean, the some of the Kitty's body doesn't make any sense. But oh, like, yeah. <laughs> Kitty almost never makes any sense. I, I, I can't tell how old she is supposed to be here, but I also can almost never tell how old she is by art. And I will be the first person as someone who draws to say drawing teenagers is so that people can tell how old they are mm. is next to impossible because teenagers look all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And it is hard to put a finger on what makes somebody look like a teen or not. Mm-hmm. So I, am, I empathize with the how that is hard. You know, I don't think as people are unattractive and this is an era where people's people start to get really unattractive. I don't love it, but like, but it's fine. And that that's about as good as I'm going to say about most people right about here. The one moment though, is in those last two pages where you see time freeze and there's a time quake and all that. I couldn't help but thinking like how much, you know, you think back to that Alan David mm. page, you know, that From climax. 67, probably. Thank you. And how much more beautiful and interesting that looked. Or for me, my brain immediately was like, can you imagine if Jim Steranko did this? Because mm. that's where my head goes. Um, so it's sort of like this art is capable, is stuff's not ugly. But when it comes to the moment to get really expressionist and imaginative, he doesn't quite take it there. At le- and at least to my aesthetic sense of the kind of stuff I like, which tends towards being really psychedelic. Yeah, that is entirely fair. That is entirely fair. I think that's a good sort of summation about of what he brings as an artist. I wanted to just conclude with a brief spotlight of the Sword Strokes Letters page. Whoa. We have not had it super often lately, but... Uh... <laughs> I've got a sort of a funny one here. So this one is from Todd Maxwell. And he says, Dear Excalibur, we are now at issue number 80 and Kurt's costume is still being colored blue instead of the traditional black. Help! Is anyone listening? Does anyone care? I thought that by writing you would realize that this blatant disregard for proper color continuity in the Marvel Universe was unacceptable, annoying, and downright immoral. Well, maybe not immoral. (laughs) Still, it's got to stop. How is anyone supposed to know where his skin ends and his costume begins? What if Kurt doesn't even know? 
You see? You see how important this is? That poor mutant must be going through such horror. Oh, Todd, working so hard on behalf of my unofficial client. We appreciate you. Kurt's hair is nice in this one. Yeah, Lashley does a nice job on the hair. Kurt should always have nice hair. He's, he's canonically mm-hmm. got nice hair. It's a feature. Batwing, snake skin. Is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in potions and petty evil? And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin? I'm worn thin and threadbare. I've tried to guide men or meddled in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has come. All right, we will wrap things up. Other than to say, Alana, thank you so dearly for joining us. Before we need go, we need to remind our lovely listeners about all the awesome stuff you do. So tell us, where can people find you online and what writing and projects or causes or anything else would you like people to check out? Sure. So my podcast, again, is Graphic Policy Radio and my Star Trek podcast is also under the same RSS because it's not like I'm doing a new episode of that every two days or anything. (laughs) Um, I uh, spend way too much time on Twitter at E. L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And if you're listening to this episode three years from now and Twitter no longer exists, I will mm. probably be at that same handle on whatever else it is that's there. Three you know, weeks I'm giving from now. on a shot, but like, <laughs> it's all a mess, all a mess. Um, yeah. And um, so I have episodes forthcoming on, on comics and there's going to be an X-Men thing coming up. And um, I hope folks will give a listen to Graphic Policy Radio. Thank you so much again. Have you talked about I'm sure you probably have talked about this because it would be the first thing that I talked about. But have you talked about shapeshifter sex on your Deep Space Nine pod? A known interest of mine, which I've discussed on this pod previously. So (laughs) we have not actually covered having shapeshifter sex yet on the podcast. This is an interest. I'm having you on the show soon, as you know, but I was unaware that you were a DS9 viewer. And if so, huge I would love to have you talk about (laughs) Odo and shapeshifter sex. I got into Deep Space Nine through shapeshifter sex fan fiction, which is something I have mentioned on this podcast before. <laughs> well, I mean, I have never heard of this, this show Space you're Nine. talking about called. I've never heard of this DS9 show you're talking about. I think you're referring to Star Trek: A Man Called Hawk, which is a very, very specific. The best, the best Star Trek, <laughs> Star Trek: A Man Called Hawk is. I mean, you're right. It is the best of those shows, but Deep Space Nine, please. Star Trek. Okay, you guys are both officially going to be guests on Deep Space Dive now. We've resolved this question. I'm very happy to hear this. So now you get to listen to your amazing hosts on Graphic Policy Radio soon for that as well. Fabulous. Love to. In a perfect world, I'm on every podcast every week. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, thank you just so much again for joining us. I loved your insights on this issue. Thank you. This has been so much fun. So next, we've got another heaping helping of Genosian metaphors and Pete Wisdom angst in Excalibur number 87, Back to Reality, also featuring Sugar Man, a character who's more of a character design than a character, but it is a cool design, so we'll talk about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> we will be joined by a guest whose scholarship we've mentioned on the pod several times previously. We're super excited to chat with him. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. You can find those via the Bo- you can find those via the Vox Popcast YouTube channel or our website. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Mav, for another explosive debut. Thank you, Alana, for lighting up with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Thank you.